Welcome to The Edges of Lean. I'm Bella Engelbach, and in this podcast, we explore the human and creative side of lean thinking, unusual places where lean thinking is practiced. We meet people who are practicing continuous improvement in many different flavors and styles. So come along with me on a journey to the edges of lean. Episode 29, Continuous Improvement and Overcoming People-Pleasing. My guest today is Brenda Florida. A lot of us in Continuous Improvement relish our roles behind the scenes as helpers and coaches, but we can fall into the trap of people-pleasing and shy away from developing our own personal power. Brenda Florida's message is about developing and using that personal power through finding and speaking our truth even as we support and empower others. Brenda Florida is a certified life coach and a podcast host. Brenda Florida, welcome to the Edges of Lean. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you because I think you have a topic that we really haven't talked about much in the lean community, especially among those of us who are working in organizations and feel like we need to please people all the time. Mm-hmm. But before we get started, could you tell us about Brenda and how did you get into this? Yes, I'm happy to. So. I am currently a certified life coach and I've been doing my life coaching business for about three years full time. But before that, I was in real estate. So I have been in the real estate business, not as a real estate agent, which is who is an independent contractor, you know, that type of worker but in leadership roles. So I was almost always an employee and part of an organization through my whole real estate career, which is a little unusual. Um, And so being a people pleaser from way back, I mean, people pleasing, for those of you who may not be familiar with that term, it really is a phrase that comes out of this pattern or habit that we get into typically when we're little children of coping with our life stress, our family stress by making others happy, right? Some people are the class clown, some people are the rebel, some people are the troublemaker, you know? So people pleasers are people who respond to any type of stress in a way that typically will silence themselves. That's sort of the Bottom line, there's a lot of other words I could put on it, but we end up keeping our mouth shut because we want to make other people happy or we don't want to, you know, be a problem or all those kinds of words that we can put on it. And so part of what that creates is also this habit of over-functioning for other people. So I don't want you to get in trouble or, you know, whatever. I'm trying to protect you from something. And so I'm going to go do what you were supposed to do. So none of us get in trouble or, you know, the way that comes out as, as little kids is different than the way it comes out as adults. But in the workplace, I know for myself, it really fostered what now we would call imposter syndrome. You know, when I got my first management role in a real estate office, nobody knew that term, but I felt like I didn't know what I was doing. I was terrified people would figure it out, you know, and so I did a lot of over-functioning and doing things to make them happy because I didn't know what else to do, so to speak. And of course, there's nothing wrong with making people happy. The part where it turns into people pleasing that doesn't serve you is when it's at the expense of yourself. And so after all my years in leadership and real estate, and really what I was doing there was helping all the people who worked for me grow their business and really learning how to teach others how to lead. So I did a lot of that. So I teach every year, at least once a year, a program for leaders, emerging leaders on emotional intelligence and how that impacts leadership. 
and uh, our effectiveness as a leader. And so all, all of that, you know, I did that for 30 years or so and then became a life coach. And so that really gave me the tools to be better at all those things I learned along the way in my real estate career. And so now I do both. I sometimes I've done consulting with real estate companies. Uh, I coach some real estate people, but then I coach a lot of people from all spectrums of life that want to get out of this habit of over-functioning for others and silencing themselves uh, at the expense of themselves. So does that give you a little bit of a flavor? Yeah. Yeah. And really, I've got some, my mind is popping with how this really intersects with what we're doing in continuous improvement and then lean. So I'd love to start out with a quick little story to share with you. Uh, and this is about, you know, working inside an organization and um, having the sense that, uh, that, that if you are doing that, if you're, if you're consulting, right, if you're consulting as an external consultant or you are the lean leader, the lean, the continuous improvement guru for an organization, that you're on tenuous ground anyway, because in a way, people look at you and say, well, this is, is this really a necessary function? You're not making the widget or designing the widget yeah. or helping the people who are doing that. And that uh, I think I think can lead um, for many of us to this feeling like like we have to take the idea that the customer is always right and take it to the nth degree so that we are not being ourselves anymore. Mm-hmm. And and that's kind of unhealthy, right? Because we we so we also need to have a well balanced workload, and we need to be able to say no. So, what is it in that kind of situation that that helps a person start to move away from that? Yes, well, I think that's a great thing, and one of the ways to look at it, because you could say that for all of my business from a coaching perspective, like as a coach, if I'm working with you one on one. I'm not sending you something in the mail that is your next new thing, right? That you can hold on to, to make your life better. It's not a widget. It's not uh, a blender. If you like to cook, it's not, you know, it's nothing tangible in that regard. And so one of the problems is in equating a tangible product to value, because a lot of value is delivered in this world that doesn't come from a tangible product. And so as a consultant, I have, and I know, you know, when I did my first consulting job and I was bidding out a big number to this company to hire me to solve a problem, but they didn't even know what the problem was. They they just knew something wasn't Mm -hmm. working. So I wasn't going to give them anything, but some insight and ideas, you know, and so I had to be able to articulate how knowing the answer, whatever the answer would turn out to be, you know, number one, that I believed I could do the digging to figure out what the problem was and then give them some sort of answer to get them moving into solving the problem. Okay. But that the value of that would be way more to the organization than my $10,000, whatever it was, like, you know, fee. And so that's what it is. When I'm charging, you know, like in my coaching package of 90 days, you get 90 sessions and support in between, it's $14.97. So I have to be able to articulate that you're going to up-level your life. You're going to move in this. And I love your, you know, continuous growth um, phrase so that the value to you is going to be way more than the $1,500 you're going to pay me. And you're going to know that. And you're going to feel that from the changes in your life. So I think that's a big part of it is we have to get away from this very sort of patriarchal formula of dollars for a tangible product and look at value and what is my contribution whatever you're hiring me to do you know that contribution how much value is that going to bring to your organization 
Does that answer your question? Did I go far enough? Well, I think I think it doesn't in a way, and I'm, but I'm, what I'm thinking of is sort of is, is sort of even further. So when I was inside a company and I had uh, consultants reporting to me who were working with different functions, one of the things I frequently found them doing was this overfunctioning. So I would find them, for example, um, they were working with a particular department, and someone in the department would say, "Well, uh, what, what what they needed to do to help solve what problem they had was to make." was to make their workflow visual, for example, you know, just be able to see what, where the work was, right? And so uh, rather than having the organization develop their own way of seeing the workflow, the, you know, the cons consultant would say, oh, I'll, I'll do that for you. I'll make the first one yeah. for you. And the next thing you know, they're running it, right? <laughs> Yeah. Right. And yes. so when I when I went when I was when the question would be asked, so why did you do that? What they would say was, well, you know, I want this, I want this client, I want this internal customer to be successful. And I really feel that, you know, our role is to help them be successful. And therefore I'm going, I'm going to, I did this for them. So if that, you know, to function. Yeah. And, and I have to say, I, I certainly have done it myself where, where it just seems like, well, they're just never going to get it done unless we show them how to do it the first time, which almost always backfires into now you're the person who has to run it. Right. Yeah. And I think that comes from a place of almost like misunderstanding um this idea that the customer is always right, or if somebody asks you to do something, you must do it. Um, yes. In the same way, you know, that the mom eats the burnt toast, right? Yes. Um, because the kid doesn't want to eat the burnt toast. And, and it's, it's, yes. it's kind of a psychological pattern we almost fall into. It's like, that's such a great um, metaphor, the mom eating the burnt toast, because as you were saying that, what I'm thinking is really what you're talking about is a boundary issue. And it would be as if saying, as a consultant, I can't have any boundaries. So whatever they ask, I have to say yes. If I have a great idea and this means the company needs a new tool, like the visual you know, workflow, mm -hmm. I have to create it. So I have no boundaries. It's really not that you would say that out loud, but that's the mm -hmm. way it's coming out is as if I have no boundaries, which is what happens to us so often in motherhood. So for anyone who has children and can think of that metaphor, you know people who have children, if you don't, and you've seen this happen, where parents are over-functioning for their children and it doesn't serve the child. In fact, it's much easier to see when you're not looking at your own child, <laughs> you know, how by the parent doing that, they're actually potentially keeping the child from going through its own learning curve. And that learning curve might be a little painful, but we want our kids to learn. So it's the same with a company. We, If I start doing all the things I'm recommending they do, then the company hasn't really learned that, right? I've gloss that over for them by creating it myself. And so I think part of it is going into your relationship with the company with as clear uh, boundaries that you can draw before you, you know, start the, the consulting project. Like as much as you can see ahead to say, okay, I'll go this far. Like for instance, in, in this one big one I did, I said, basically, I'm going to figure out your problem and I'm going to give you some ways to solve them. I'm not going to do the work of solving them, right? I mean, I, that I, I could articulate that. Sometimes it's not that simple, but you've got to be able to have a relationship where you can say, okay, I can give you some resources for visual flow. And then you guys decide which one you want and who you want to put in charge of implementing that for this department or this company or whatever, so that you're not just leaving them hung out to dry, but nor are you let going, let, letting go of all your own boundaries and doing the work for them because you really end up in the end potentially doing them a disservice. Well, what, yeah, as, 
Yeah, in the same way that you were saying about children. And so just as a child might not learn to cross the street safely until they go to college, as you know, is kind of yeah. an, an outrageous example. Um, what, what you're almost saying to them is, I don't think that you are capable. You're actually yeah. not looking at them as having a capability. Um, so in kind of a perverse way, even though you you might be thinking that you're doing the right thing and, 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 and pleasing people, what you're really doing is not respecting their full of capability to learn and to develop what they what they need to do. And in lean we call, you know, we call, you know, this con we have this concept of respect for people, which is this idea that people are absolutely incredible, creative beings able to learn and solve problems very well. Sometimes you need some help learning to do that more and more effectively. But the moment we we do something for them but that we should probably have them do for themselves, then we are inside ourselves is perhaps saying, I don't know if you really can. Yes. And they'll ultimately, they'll pick up on that, whether it's a child, your spouse, a person you're working with in an organization, whatever it is. When we do for somebody else something that they can do for themselves, again, even if that means they can do it with some struggle, right? That doesn't mean everything comes easy, but you could do that. As soon as I do for you what you could do, it is potentially a backhanded insult. And it can create a dependence that we don't want because as a consultant, you want to come in and out right? You're not there to be their, you know, permanent solution to their problem. And even if your role isn't a consultant, your job is to do your job, not to do somebody else's. And I think that's, again, where the boundaries come in, because it can be very easy. If you're a person prone to people pleasing, it can be very easy to rationalize exactly where we started. Well, this is my job. I'm the consultant. I'm supposed to make them happy. I'm supposed to solve their problem. I'm supposed to, you know, manage these people. So, you know, John didn't get his part of the project ready. So I'm up till midnight doing it. So the team doesn't suffer because John didn't do his part. Well, that's my job. I'm the project manager. No, 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 no. It's not our jobs to stop people from suffering what they create with what they do or do not do. It's our job to manage the outcome of that. So now what do we do? Do I need to fire John? Do I need to, you know, like there's a million questions. That's my job, not to make sure John nor the team never experiences the reality of John doing what he does. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. And it makes me think of, of another situation that, that um, but I ran into frequently, run into frequently in doing uh, improvement work. So one of the things that we want to pay attention to is rework. So that, and that's, that's when we have to do something again because it wasn't done right the first time. Yeah. And I have experienced a situation when you go in and start to take a look at a process and start to try to understand what's really happening with the process where people say, well, there, there really isn't any rework. So we ask the question, all right, what percentage of the time does this thing land on your desk or, you know, in your email inbox? Perfect. Exactly the way it's supposed to be. So that you can do your piece and, and send it on down the line. And Often when you ask that question, they say, well, you know, sometimes, you know, this happens and that happens. Well, what do you do when that happens? You know, when it comes in, it's not the way it's supposed to be. And oftentimes the answer has been, well, I just fix it. So in their mind, it's not rework because they're not sending it back to the person who didn't um, complete the previous step correctly for whatever reason, um, it's that's not rework. That's just part of my job. And it can actually become a huge part of people's jobs to do this work that perhaps that should have been done you know, earlier in the process. Now, the follow-on question then is, well, why do you do that? And, and what I found in some organizations that have a very psychologically unsafe environment is, and I think you said this before, I don't want so-and-so to get into trouble. 
yeah. but this being done incorrectly. So they know that they're in an environment where it's not going to be taken well when they find out something's something's not going well. And so they want to protect this other person. And yeah. so there's a, there's a sort of a bigger picture thing going on around the whole environment that, yes. that they work in. Um, and it's just so fascinating, you know, to find out time and time again, that when that when people are struggling with a process and you know things are taking longer than you expected, so many times it's because they're actually fixing something to protect another person. Yeah. So, so how would you uh, suggest that when you find a situation like that, what might be the, the the some of the things to do to help that help improve that? Well, so this is a really complex issue because of course there are workplaces or departments and workplaces project you know teams whatever that can be very toxic and in truth very unsafe for all the people that are working in there so i don't want to make light of that and sound mm -hmm. like i've got some you know great answer that's just going to solve all this uh, but then there's the, there's a spectrum of that, right? There's the, the super toxic um, to the to the not, and everything in between. But what I know for sure is that those ideas, whether it's in the workplace or at home, of I've got to do this to protect somebody else, are that's a very mindset. That's a thought. Those are thoughts in your head. It's very driven by mindset, okay? And our mind often tells us things that are not true at all. Mm. We all had the situation where we thought somebody was mad at us and we probably even had evidence because we called them and they didn't call us back or they didn't respond to an email or text or something and we're just sure they're so mad at us and we don't know what we did and my goodness and all this stress. And then we find out whatever, their phone was dead or they were at a conference and we didn't realize it, whatever. Nothing happened. That whole trip was a trip we took in our head. And so we have to be really careful also with this idea of, I'm going to do this to protect this person because protecting that person your own idea of protecting that person may not be what's in their best interest. It may not be what's in your best interest. It may not be what's in the company's best interest. Like, who am I? There's sort of this, who am I to think I really know all this, right? Um, because my job is to know me and my behavior. So a metaphor I use a lot when I talk to people about this, because it's very tricky. Um, to discern where you're at in this spectrum. But I use the metaphor of a sandbox. So I have my own sandbox and it is me and it is my life and my feelings and my thoughts and my actions, you know, or lack of action. What do I do? What do I don't do? You know, how I respond to people, how I respond in any given situation, that's all me. And that is all my responsibility. Okay. Then you have your own sandbox, Bella, as, as does every listener, you know, everybody has their own sandbox. Now, if I decide from my sandbox that I need to just fix whatever you gave to me, because I don't want you to get in trouble, you know, with our toxic boss or, you know, cause I feel bad for you because something personal just happened and I just don't want you to experience that. Okay. I am over in your sandbox because that's your life, your actions, your feelings, what you do, what you don't do is your sandbox. And as soon as I go jump into your sandbox, I have no authentic power. We lose all of our power when we get into other people's sandboxes because that's where they have their power. And so we don't belong there. Now I could make a suggestion to you, right? Or I could say, hey, do you have time to redo this? I found these mistakes or, you know, whatever. We can talk about it. 
But when I just decide I'm going to take over that part of your sandbox and make that little sandcastle the way it should be, so nobody notices that you didn't, it gets it can get very messy because we only have power in our own lives over what we do, not other people and what they do. There's no power there, and that's why we usually get bit in the butt by it at some point. <laughs> Does that sort of make sense or resonate with how you're thinking about this? It does. And I'm thinking, you know, it's the, it's the same concept that we were talking about before with, with parents, right? Yeah. So again, you're, you're kind of looking at this other person and saying, well, you know, they're not able to function. I'll over function for them. Um, and you, have, you're, you're, all, you're kind of looking at them. And as you said, it may be sort of a backhanded Yes, insult you know, or insult, compliment, or what you know, whatever that that this person can't function for themselves, and well, maybe they need some help speaking up, or maybe you know, maybe the boss needs yeah. to know that there's something in the working condition that needs to change so they can do their job right. But yeah. it's it's but as soon as you start to do their work, then you you're taking away, as you said, you, you're taking away yeah. their empowerment. Yes, yes, and it is the idea that. We don't know, like it could be the best thing for that person to have a, you know, showdown with the boss to maybe even lose their job or get mad and quit. Like we never know. Everybody's got a story about how the worst thing that happened to them turned out to be the best thing. So who am I to try to decide I'm wiser than all of that that we cannot see and know about another person and their journey? to interject and protect them from that. Like, that's just not my job. That's, that's, you know, that's really interesting because that is the thing I think that people, you know, when it comes down to it, people say, well, you know, well, why don't you want to? Well, I don't want them to get in trouble. They might get, they might get reprimanded. They might, you know, they might get fired. But as you said, in the bigger picture for a lot of people, that's not necessarily the worst thing that could happen. And yeah. it might not be, and this is going to sound terrible because in lean, you know, we don't, we, we encourage not having a high turnover, right? Yeah. But it might be the best thing for the boss too, because the it might be if the boss is, is, is I feel like I'm skating a little thin ice here with my lean colleagues, but with the, if the boss is running an environment in which it was very difficult for people to do their job right, if they keep having to fire people or people yeah. keep quitting on them, that may be a message to the boss too. You're going to have to do something about this so that you don't have this expensive turnover to manage. Yeah. What are you, what are you going to do about that? You know? So yeah. that's a, you know, it's a message for them. It's a, it's a painful, it could be yeah. very painful, but. Um, because you know, when you're the manager, so let's just presume all of us listening here are really always trying to be our best selves in the workplace. Okay. But if you're managing any group of people, I, I don't care if it's one person or a hundred, if you don't really know what's going on because someone in that group is covering for somebody else, there's all kinds of things you cannot effectively manage because you don't even know they're going on. And this is especially true in these environments which are where the work is invisible. Right. Yeah. So, th so that when you're talking about an environment where it is, you know, maybe we're working on a document together and so it's, it's not like I can actually watch you, yeah. you know, make a thing and then, and then it goes down the line to the next, but the next operator on the line and you can see, did they talk it just enough? Yeah. But, but, you know, if you, if you're working on say a document together or some, some other type of information flow, it is hard enough for the manager to go to the gamba, which means, you know, go to the actual place and see what's happening. And just under normal circumstances, but now if people are hiding things deliberately yeah. Yeah. to protect their friend, um, yes. that makes it even harder on the manager. So it's it's a sort of another disservice to, the, to how do we understand what's really happening? And because if we don't understand, we can't improve it. Yes. So that's how I tend to think of it. I like to think one way to help me in my barometer, so to speak, with mm. where am I, where do I need to set a boundary and where am I just doing a favor for somebody kind of a thing, you know, and that's part of it is I would think, well, if 
I was the boss, whatever that means and whatever organization, yeah. you know, would I want to know that Bella's not really contributed to this project we were doing? Brenda did most of it, you know, like whatever. Would I want to know that? And when, I, and when I'm, if you and I are doing this project and nobody, it's hard for anybody else to see exactly what I'm doing and what you're doing. You know, if you have a bad day and under function one day, I'm going to probably just, you know, you help out the same thing and help out and not worry about it. But if it's day after day after day, then I'm thinking, okay, so if I was the boss, would I want to know? And if the answer is yes, that helps me say, okay, I'm going to have to set my boundary and I'm going to do it with you first. I'm not going to go straight to the boss and tattle because one, I'm the one who's been covering, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so first I'm going to go to you and say, hey, you know, I know this thing happened or you had this bad day, but it doesn't seem like you're recovering or it seems like you're still, you know, so what do we need to do? How can I support you in getting back? to the production level you need to be at or, you know, whatever the appropriate thing is. And then if I get nothing from you, then I'm going to go to the person I'm reporting to about it. You know, if I can't get you to respond or whatever. Um, but that is one way I can help figure out where do I start down that slippery slope from being a nice person to being a people pleaser, which doesn't serve any of us in the end. It doesn't serve any of us. And it especially doesn't serve you because then you end up, you know, doing the, the 16 hour days or feeling yeah. resentful or all and of that. Nobody's going to appreciate that, right? Then, then we go into that resentment of, oh, I'm not appreciated at work, whatever. Well, maybe a bunch of what you want to be appreciated for isn't even your work. So, of course, no one's appreciating you for it because it's not even yours to be doing. You know, and so that's always resentment is the biggest litmus test I use for people. I don't care if it's in workplace or personal, anything personal. When you imagine yourself doing something, taking on a project, taking the lead, whatever it is, folding the laundry. <laughs> if you imagine that and if nobody said thank you, you would be resentful. That's a red flag. Because we all do lots of things all the time that nobody actually says thank you for. And we do them because we want to, or we just feel like that's part of right. our, you know, responsibility or whatever. And thank you once in a while is great, but I don't, I don't need, you know, when I'm at my workplace doing my job, I don't need my supervisor clapping for me every day. It's my job. I want it sometimes, you know, but if I start to realize, no, you know what, I'm going to be resentful. Somebody doesn't notice how much I've done. I'm going to be resentful. We're probably over-functioning in some way, or we're doing, even if it's our own work, like the project has grown bigger. Like, let's say, Bella, you're my supervisor and I'm doing this project for your consulting or whatever. And it's grown bigger than we all realized. Then it's, and I can imagine I'm going to be resentful mm -hmm. not bowing down, telling me how awesome I am. Um, I need to come to you and talk about how the project has now gotten bigger than either of us imagined or what, you know, that maybe that's the check-in. Maybe no one else is under-functioning, but it's grown bigger than we realized it would. It's not my job to absorb all that. It's my job to talk to you about it and say, we need to do some reevaluating because this is much bigger now that I've gotten into it, it's much bigger than I realized it was going to be. And not make that mean, back to mindset, what we make things mean, yeah. head, that I've done something wrong by not being able to anticipate that from the beginning. That's a fallacy, you know. It's just, it, it's just stating facts. It's, it's, yeah, it's this is how big facts. we thought it was. And in consulting, that happens all the time. Sure. Get into it you get into it and find it is bigger hairy and more complex and and so that's back to the boundaries if i set out to say do my consulting contract and i like i'm gonna do this many hours or this many things or, you know whatever you have some guidelines you hopefully nobody's just saying i'm gonna fix your problems for you know 
$5,000 and anything's possible, right? So you've <laughs> got your parameters, then that's where you go, okay, now I'm outside, I'm going to have to go outside of those parameters. So not my, I have to suck all that up. Now I need to go have a conversation with whoever hired me as the consultant to say, here's the parameters we set mutual responsibility. And I can see we're going to have to go outside of those. What do you want to do? That super professional, super respectful, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I can see somebody who does have people pleasing tendencies playing out in their mind a scenario, you know, where the client turns into an enraged person and, and does yeah. something awful to them. Yeah. But, but that wouldn't necessarily, again, to your point, that wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing because it would be better to get out of that situation yeah. Yeah. than to be in it and not yeah. be able to do the work that you that yes. they think I mean, that you're going to do. There's always the crazy person, right? And so sometimes we will hit that. And yeah, then we're better off knowing sooner than later mm -hmm. that would have come up. And so often that fear of that crazy person or that crazy reaction is really just in our minds and not actually what's going to happen. But we create the fear and then we act as if that fear is true to protect ourselves because that's what fear is meant to do, right? I would be afraid to walk out in the middle of the freeway for good reason. My fear is meant to protect me. But inside our heads, we get all these fears that get triggered and they're not protecting us from anything because it's not even real. It's not, it hasn't happened. It's imagined it's, you know, all of that. And so that's why um, I'm very passionate about, you know, mindset coaching and what I do. I used to just say I'm a mindset coach. Now I feel like that's too narrow to describe uh -huh. what I do because our feelings are so interconnected to all those thoughts, right? But fear is not just a series of thoughts that come to your mind it's a feeling you know and so we really have to deal with both sides of that for the a whole picture um and not just mindset but uh it's a very powerful thing i think it's very important you know when when you feel you feel fear and you and you're so right brenda you feel fear you'll feel it in your gut you'll feel it you'll feel it in in your mouth going dry, yeah. um, you know, it's important to, to get in tune with your body so that you, you can actually feel those things happening. But when you feel it, to recognize that it's not always the truth. Yeah. Right? And so, and so there's a balance, isn't there, between, I mean, people, people say, and a lot of people say, and I, you know, that we should trust our gut. And yeah. there are times, you know, you get into the elevator with somebody and, you know, you have a feeling about them and you should, you know, you trust your gut. But there are times when you get into the elevator with somebody and you have that feeling, but it's some internal bias that you've absorbed along yeah. the way. It's a memory of a bad thing that happened or that you thought was going to happen that gets in the way. And so really taking that moment to step back and say, all right, I'm feeling fear. Is it true? I mean, yeah. it's really, yeah. it's very important. Yes. So this is one of the things that I do all the time, especially with people I coach one-on-one -on -one, and I try to teach it when I'm in a, you know, leadership training or something. Um, but it is, that's so important. Exactly what you're saying, learning for yourself, because it's a little different for each of us, but for yourself, what is that inner wisdom, which is what we kind of mean when we say trusting our gut. Okay. Versus uh, anxiety that triggers fear that isn't true. And one of the ways, just to give everybody a way to sort of start to explore their own reactions and see what you come up with, is that our inner wisdom is generally very calm 
and fairly quiet. It's not yelling at us, okay? Like that internal yelling we get in our head. Um, it's usually fairly calm and quiet and it can be quite firm, right? Like it can have a very definite no, okay? But it has a different quality of how it feels inside the body and sort of what start the thoughts that start coming up in the head, in the mind, versus a more compulsive, fear-driven anxiety where it's just like everything's very energetically kind of frantic and, you know, life and death all the time or whatever. Like even in very hard situations, your inner wisdom is going to handle it in a much calmer, you know, think Nelson Mandela instead yeah. of, uh, you know, a crazy dictator. And our mind is usually up in the crazy dictator. You know, you're stupid. Why didn't you see that? Run away. Like, rah, rah, rah. you know, it's usually more crazy dictator and the heart or the soul or our inner wisdom, whatever words you like to use is usually just like, no, honey, don't do that. You know, <laughs> and when you practice, that's like a muscle, like any other, you know, exercise you do when you first do it, it's hard. You can't tell it's done any good. You're not sure you're getting it, whatever. But if you keep practicing that so that you can begin to hear the difference and feel the difference in your body of inner wisdom versus anxiety and the kind of fear that isn't there to really help us, it's to hold us back you'll start to feel the difference between those two things. So does that require or, or suggest that people should be taking time each day to, to have a place, a time and a place to think, to separate themselves from their work or their family, or work and family? Yes, yes. I am a big believer, we'll go back to our sandbox metaphor, mm -hmm. of making sure you play in your own sandbox plenty, just by yourself you know, and get to know that environment of your own sandbox, get to know your body. One of the exercises I take people through, even in a group experience, is this body compass exercise that I learned from my coach teacher, who is Dr. Martha Beck, where, you know, we think of a really fantastic memory, you know, and really, like, really imagine it, get back in that, you know, and notice and then check in with your body. What does my body feel like? Do I feel light? Do I feel tingling in my hands, my arm? You know, people feel it all different ways, but you keep going back to those positive memories or go just go back today to something that brought you a lot of gratitude or fun or excitement or pleasure. Okay, let me take a moment and check in. What does my body feel like? because there's going to be real themes there. It's going to, there's going to be a lot of repetition in what your body feels like when you're in a really happy, grateful place. And then the very stressful memory, a very stressful moment in the day, same thing. You're going to start to feel how it's always a contraction of some sort of tenseness and a contraction. Again, people feel it in different parts of their body, but when you're stressed, it's, that's how it feels. It's very constricting. And when you're happy, there's always something lighter and more open about it. Even if it's hard, this doesn't mean, you know, we think life is a panacea of all only happy things are going to happen. But even in a difficult leaving a job, leaving, you know, even leaving a spouse, I left a partner and it was very difficult but my, the quality of how I felt in my body and, you know, in my soul was very peaceful and very, you know, without stress, even though, you know, I was financially dependent on him. I didn't have a place to live. I didn't, I mean, there were all sorts of hard things mm -hmm. happening, you know, but it was not very stressful. And, and your body was telling you that and my body was because I kept, I took the time. In fact, in that, because I knew I was in the throes of something very difficult. I felt like my number one job every day was to spend time with myself and get myself in that sort of peace, 
peace and ease. So not easy, but ease, just that peace and ease, that openness. And then, okay, what are the things I need to do today to take care of my situation? So I'm thinking, you know, I think about folks who are going in and working in organizations, whether they're internal or external consultants or people who are taking on as managers, taking on the roles of coaching their employees, mm -hmm. that time spent in the day getting themselves into that place and understanding their own body's reactions to situations is going to be time very well spent. Yes. Yeah. And, and it doesn't take... You don't have to be a monk, you know, meditating for six hours. It really takes very little time. What it takes is intention. Like it takes that intention to say, not just I'm going to sit in my car for five minutes, but I'm going to sit in my car for five minutes before I start driving to tune into myself and check in and see what my body needs and or give myself the space to let some of that steam or pressure or whatever word you want to use, yeah. whatever it feels like, let it start to dissipate. Because our bodies are made, when you think about animals, we can watch an animal be in a very stressful situation. You know, National Geographic, the lion is chasing the gazelle, you know? And if the gazelle gets away, it recovers from that pretty quickly. They say within about 15 or 20 minutes, almost any animal will recover from whatever near death thing has happened to them. Well, we are made the same way. We're made to recover, but we don't allow ourselves to recover. The animal shakes, like it literally shakes its body. You know, So movement is super helpful going for a walk. That's why so many people love to go to the gym after work, You know, because it lets them get that out of their system. It's a real thing that energy can't be pent up inside of us. It needs some sort of release. You could do it with singing. You know, you could do it watching, you know, funny cat videos. I don't know. There's a lot <laughs> of different ways to do it, but it's the intention of doing it is what makes the benefit really um, start to expand in your life is when you have that intention of, I want to let this stress go. I want to get back to a place of more peace and ease in my mind and my body. What do I need to do that? Just That's that in five minutes, doing that a couple times a day will change so much. That's amazing advice. Yeah. Brenda, how do people find you? Oh, well, uh, I have an easy name, so an easy website. My name yeah. is Brenda Florida. So my website is brendaflorida.com. I have a podcast um, that we can put a link to in the show notes called Liberate Your People Pleaser. Uh, and I do an episode every week on that. In fact, you're going to be a guest for me as well. And I can't wait for that. I'm excited. Yeah, yeah. So, and of course, I'm on Facebook and uh, Instagram. I'm Brenda Florida Coach. Uh, so yeah, I'd love to hear from the listeners. I would love to connect with anybody. If anybody has a question for me, um, you can email me through my website or what, you know, show notes, anything. My inbox is not too full to receive an email from you. So super, super. Yeah. Brenda, what's your advice for a young person starting out? There's so much to learn, right? What would be your yeah. one piece of advice? I think the most important thing is to remember really to stay in your own sandbox, right? To develop your skills, your learn about yourself, learn how to set those boundaries, all things about you. Because what we tend to do, young or otherwise, is to think if some circumstance outside of me would change or some person would do something different, then I would be okay, right? Like if you would just, Bella, if you would just <laughs> do your part of the project, I would be fine, right? And that's always not true <laughs> because I have no power over you. So I wanna be fine 
with or without you doing your project. So maybe that means I need to go talk to you or I need to go talk to somebody else because you're not doing your project. But the only power we have is again, back at home in that our own sandbox. It's what I'm doing, thinking and saying. So anytime we have the idea the thought that if so-and-so would change, or if I had more money, or if I get in a work for a different company, then everything's going to be okay, you know, and it's not, that's a sign to come home to ourselves and see what refining, there's nothing wrong with you. It's not that you're not good enough. There's nothing broken, but there's a refining, right? Like a fine tuning of ourselves that is always going on. That's that Uh constant growth that says, okay, so what do I need to learn? Because I'm working with Bella who pretty consistently doesn't do what she's supposed to do. What's in that for me? Instead of getting focused on how I've got to get you to change. Because there's no power in that. Right. So the power is all with yourself. Always at home, always in our own sandbox. Yes. Yes. Thank you, Brenda Florida. It's been so much fun having you visit out at the edges of lean. I have had so much fun being here. Thank you so much. This is Bella Engelbach, and I'd like to thank Brenda Florida for being my guest on the edges of lean. What are you doing to build your personal power? We'd love to hear from you. Find Brenda at brendaflorida.com. Find me at leanforhumans.com or on LinkedIn or comment wherever you watch or listen. No matter how you travel to the edges of lean, your ratings, reviews, and comments are greatly appreciated. Please join me in exploring more of the edges of lean. There's a lot to learn. And check out my friends in the Lean Communicators community at leancommunicators.com. You'll find more podcasts and videos with lots of great new content every week. The Edges of Lean is written and produced by Bella Engelbach. This is a Lean for Humans production.